Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In 2021, cities across the U.S. saw a dramatic uptick in gun violence. According to analysis from CNN, nearly two-thirds of major American cities experienced more gun violence than they did in 2020. Experts say it's a perfect storm, a combination of the pandemic, the visibility of racial violence, and a boom in firearm sales. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. How are communities responding to the threat of gun violence? Coming up, we'll talk to a criminal justice expert on the 10th anniversary of a controversial policing program called Project Longevity. And later, we'll take an exclusive look at a new report about the state of rental evictions here in Connecticut. But first, Marlene Pratt. She's a high school science teacher and gun control advocate. She's also co-founder of the New Haven Botanical Garden of Healing, dedicated to victims of gun violence. The garden is the first memorial to honor the more than 600 people who have lost their lives to gun violence in New Haven since 1976. Marlene, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. You have been a force of bringing this garden to the city of New Haven, but it's been a long journey. And your path to creating that space really began after the death of your son, Gary Miller, in 1998. And he, like so many people in the city, became a victim of gun violence. Share with our listeners how uh, spending time in the Marsh Botanical Gardens helped you in your process of grieving. I always felt like grieving in nature was the best way to grieve because it reminded me of things that were living. So going to the Marsh Botanical Garden versus a cemetery, which was so desolate and remind you of the day that you put on your black and lowered that cemetery in the ground just was more peaceful and serene for me. I started out in the garden as visiting the greenhouses. I'm a science teacher, so I went in through the greenhouses and looked around. But then I found my spot. And my spot was around a little small area that was a man-made pond about big as a child's swimming pool. And there was huge fish sitting in there. It was hidden in the garden, but it was, it was destined for me to be there. And I would sit there and I would reflect on him and, and think of him as the fish moving around and being alive. And, and they would even walk up to me as if, as if to say, I'm here, I'm here, mom with you. Don't worry. I'm okay. But it gave me, um, a sense of peace and serenity. And it was something that I wanted every other mom in the city to feel. Because when I walked away from there, it was like, you knew he was okay. Even though you miss him, you know he's okay. Grief is such a personal process. And especially when you lose a loved one to violence. Because often people don't know what to say. And so they just don't say anything or they're isolating. And what you've done is bring together mothers and others who have suffered this loss to publicly remember your loved ones and to connect together in this space. And so, as I said, it was a long journey. 
But in 2021, the city of New Haven was able to open this garden officially. For our listeners who have not yet been to the gardens, walk us through some of the key features of that space and how you and the others who brought it to fruition hope people will experience it. Absolutely. The garden is designed to bring awareness. So there is awareness piece with the garden. So upon walking to the garden, you start with 1976. As you walk through the garden, you first start out with a walkway. And this walkway is has date bands. And behind each date band is a personalized brick for every victim that lost their life to gun violence. You look up onto the side of the garden and we have the wind chime. And the wind chimes are there to muffle the sound and to to bring that peaceful, serene to you. So you know that what you're walking into is something that's going to be really peaceful. On the other side of the wind chimes, we have the West River. So that West River is going to flow freely and you see it rippling down. And and that's the spot where you can sit on a bench and and face the river and and just see life there. You look up, you look straight ahead and you have West Rock. So I call that the mountain in which like Moses was given his instructions. Marlene, you were given your instructions right here that this is where you are to place this serene spot that's going to make a difference in this city. Now, uh, while you're standing there, you're looking over at our sculpture. The sculpture we designed is a family structure. So when you first walk into garden, you look upon that structure and you see the family. You see a mother, a father, some children, and you also see the little cherries that are floating around the top. So as you're walking down the walk, you get closer to the sculpture. You don't see the family anymore. The family has kind of become shattered. And it depicts how gun violence would tear up a family because that family is no longer visible to you as you get closer. When you go to the back, we have a tree of life that sits in the back. And it's in the center of what I call an outdoor classroom. But when you get to the tree of life and you turn back around and you look at the sculpture, you see the restoration of that family again, letting you know that you will see your loved ones again when you're standing there by that tree of life. So it it is a healing process and it's awareness because I want the walkway to depict When you walk down that walkway, anyone who feels desensitized or have kind of become uh, complacent with about gun violence, it doesn't happen to me. So why should I worry about it? But going down that walkway brings awareness to you and lets you know that New Haven does have a problem. So it's awareness piece, yet still a place to heal. And not just somebody for gun violence, somebody who gets bad news on cancer or something like that can go and sit there and reflect and heal. So I have to tell you that I'm deeply moved by listening to you talk about this space. As someone who too has lost loved ones to violence, to gun violence, you have walked us through that entire experience, the the anger, the pain, the shame. But what's so beautiful about what you've helped create is that there is life on the other side of that experience, that connection. And this botanical garden then is not just about remembering the people that we've lost. It's also about reconnecting with the people who are still here. And I think that's so beautiful that you've created this. 
What have been the reactions over this last year to people who have experienced this space through those different lenses and experiences that you've just mentioned? Well, I, what really I didn't think about until the garden was completed and I observed different ones coming in is the, the people who lost their loved ones to gun violence and cremated. There's no physical space for them to go to. So I, I've had one, one sister who came to the garden and she was searching through and she found her brother's name. She fell to her knees and said, he's here. She said, we, she said, we had to cremate him. We got rid of his ashes because we wanted to spr sprinkle him somewhere. I had nowhere to go. She said, but now I see his name right here and I know my brother's gonna be remembered here and I could come here. We had another family who came in and had the actual box, the actual urn with them. And they floated around on his birthday to celebrate the birthday at his brick. So we have different ones who come in. I know we've been asked to do weddings and other things like that, just to be close to my father because my father cannot be at my wedding. But we just, it's just been wonderful. The neighbors have come out. The neighbors are, are taking care of it. The neighbors call me if they, they think something's not right. But so far, it's, it's been pretty good. Everybody has respected it. I've, I've said in the dedication that to everyone, I said, just know this is like a Holocaust memorial. It's like our Vietnam memorial. We are remembering our children. We are remembering our loved ones right here. We are remembering right here so that they didn't die in vain from gun violence. I want to talk about what it took to get to this space, because you have carved out this sanctuary really in the center of a bustling urban city. And the fact that you've created a space for calm, for peace, for serenity and connection, bordered by all of these natural features, and yet you are still in the middle of the city with various neighborhoods that connect to that space. Have you encountered any opposition or doubt of people saying, is this what we need to have here? Or largely has it been the kind of response that you've talked about of community saying, this is our space and we're going to protect and affirm it together? Because I teach high school, I feel like I can connect with the young people and connect with them without fear. That's, that's a lot of problems now is people, uh, adults are now afraid of our young people because our young people are doing whatever they want to do. So I carried a sign around with me with all the names. And so what I did was I started going around the city. And when I see a lot of young people gathered, I stop and I use my gray hair and I come out the car and I say, excuse me. And I bring my, my board out and I ask them if they know anyone on there. And I tell them about the garden and I tell them how important it is and how I want them to respect it. And I've always said, now, some of you may have put someone out there. Some of you might have a loved one out there. Remember, this is for them. This is so that their memory will live on forever. And I invite you to go out there and see them. And I, I was talking to one particular guy who, who referred to the names on the poster as soldiers. And so I knew then. I said, oh, boy, I'm talking to a gang member right now. And while I talked to him and I said, well, your soldiers will, will live forever. They did not die in vain. I said, and I don't know if you, there's some other people you might have out there or you might have rival people, but this is not the area. We need to respect this area because 
they paid the, they paid the price. They paid the ultimate price by losing their life. So let's respect them. And that's my message to all of them. And then I invite them to go out and I told them I meet them out there and and, and we can walk it together. Uh, one of them did tell me is that it was mutual ground and said, you picked a good spot because it's mutual ground. It doesn't belong to anyone. So we all can go there. We're glad that you walked out on faith because you've brought together vision with community, with collaboration and with purpose. And you said you're a teacher and you can hear it, that you are an educator at heart that uses the opportunities you have to teach people, even if it just means teaching us to see one another and affirm that humanity. Because as you said, so many young people feel unseen and unheard and act out in ways that are destructive to themselves and to their families. And I have to ask, because you've also mentioned honoring the lives that have been lost, but also preventing further losses because of those generational impact. So much of what happens when we cover violence, particularly gun violence and crime in this country, we often focus on the perpetrators of violence and we forget the victims and we forget the families that get left behind once the headline goes away. What would you say we owe to the survivors of this violence and those who are navigating this pain, the mothers, the siblings, the the friends and neighbors? What do we owe them? I'm also a part of a survivors of homicide group and we come together to be heard. And, and the, when I first joined that group, that's where I met the other three ladies who worked with me, Pam, Celeste and Winifred. And when we all came together, first day I arrived, I looked around and I said, I met my peers because in Marsh Botanical Garden, I thought I was by myself. And when I went in, I said, I met my peers. And what I found out is that there are so many unsolved cases and they need to be solved. And and that is one of the goals I'm working on with the moms and letting them know that when I lost my son, I gave the police department two weeks. And then I told them, I said, I'm joining your force. And they asked me, what do you mean by that? I said, I will be on the street. I'm walking the beat. And so I went to the neighborhood and I was out there just one week. And after a week, someone came forward and and gave them the information and gave them a name so that they could go out and make arrests. We should come together as mothers and whoever and and support each other in that area because sometimes we feel left out. And we have people who say to us, okay, it's been a year. To me, it's been 10 years. It's been 15 years. You're you're still grieving? I'm going to grieve forever. It was like a whole... That has been taken out of my heart when I lost my son. I hear the story disrupted. And when you think about being disrupted, everything's disrupted. Your whole life is disrupted. You lose a part of your soul. So what can be a support system for the victims is that we need more more sensitivity from the police department. We need the police department to understand that if someone comes forward, if we can walk those streets, because we can probably get more success than they can, because where people will not talk to the police department, they will feel our pain and talk to us. But once we bring that information to you, then you have to carry out, you have to do your job and take that information and bring justice. 
you can't use that person who brought the information to you on the witness stand. Because once you do that, then you put them at danger. We have a mom that, that's right now grieving her son who came forth. He was part of something that happened and he came forth and told the whole story. He did a couple of years in jail, but when he came home, he was only alive one month, one month. So as far as, as support that sees something, say something, we need that to be out there. We need people to understand that, that when you lose a child, you just don't need to be sensitive of it and work with us. What I appreciate is that you are focused on your healing but you're focused on the healing collectively of community. And so we are so grateful for all that you do to keep this going. Marlene Pratt is co-founder of the New Haven Botanical Garden of Healing, and it's dedicated to victims of gun violence. Marlene, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For more on the Botanical Garden of Healing, you can visit our website. It's ctpublic.org disrupted. When we return, how a New Haven community policing program is working to stop the threat of gun violence before it occurs. And two housing advocates join us with new data about the evictions crisis in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. For nearly 30 years, police departments around the country have sought better ways to deter gun violence in our cities. In New Haven, Project Longevity is celebrating its 10th anniversary. New Haven, along with Bridgeport and Hartford, were pilot cities for this project back in 2012. This is a community-centered initiative, and it works to stem gun violence by targeting troubled youth and getting them the support that they need. So how's the program doing? Dr. Lorenzo Boyd joins us now. In addition to being a former police officer, he's also the Stewart Professor in Criminal Justice and Community Policing at the University of New Haven. Lorenzo, welcome back to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, we are hearing lots of national conversations about increases in gun violence. And a lot of what we're hearing from experts like you is that this is not new, that although it may be affecting different communities or different people, that this is a longstanding challenge. And in particular, in cities like New Haven, that, you know, a few years ago was listed as one of the top 40 cities in the U.S. for violent crime. Two questions. One, what does that mean to be listed as a a top city for violent crime? And then two, what has been the history of seeing those sorts of concerns about gun violence in a city like New Haven? Two great questions. First of all, when we talk about top cities, we're talking about per capita because that's the only way we can compare small cities like New Haven to cities like Chicago, Memphis, New York, or whatever. So it's how many of a particular crime per 100,000 residents. Now, the other thing we're going to find out is that urban cities, cities that are kind of densely packed and populated, tend to have higher crime rates because crime is also a function of population density. So the more people are packed together, the higher the crime rates tend to be. 
So cities like New Haven, as opposed to cities that are a little more sprawling like Jacksonville, that's really wide and it's got a lot of area, it's going to appear different. So the other part of that is we have to look at why we're having the issues that we're having. And the one thing I keep saying is that crime is not the problem. Crime is indicative of larger problems in society. And if we fix the societal problems, then the gun violence and the crimes and stuff will diminish. So I I hear you and I understand it and I get it from an academic perspective. But I think about residents of cities like New Haven who say, look, I don't have the time to figure out the systemic problems. I don't have time to, to figure out the societal causes, because what you're saying is that, you know, this crime and this violence is really a symptom of a much deeper, much larger problem that if we don't grapple with, We will find ourselves always in this moment of asking what can be done. What are some of those mechanisms that you see, right? So this balance between I want you to do something right now and these larger, broader problems that can't be fixed overnight. Is it about a a scourge of, you know, drug trafficking that may lead to these increases? Is it about organized crime? What are these bigger things that are leading to some of the challenges that you mentioned? I would take a step even back before that. Before we look at actual crime, let's take a look at the public school system. Do we have a public school system that's effectively training and educating our young people? We also need to look at things like food insecurity. Do people need to go out and do something and color outside the lines or commit crimes in order to feed their families. We're talking about levels of housing insecurity. So these are things that we need to think about. We push this on community members, but community members are also struggling. It takes more than just a few community members to get this done. We need intervention from the city, and I would argue from the state and also from the federal government. What's interesting about the need for those interventions is over the last 18 months in the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people pointing to these pandemic-induced or what they see as pandemic-induced problems. But the kinds of challenges you're talking about predate the pandemic. Maybe we're exacerbated by that. But what does it mean when schools shut down and kids who had access to extracurriculars or to supports and resources, mental health support, that suddenly goes away and now people are left to decide, how do I fend for myself? How do we make sense then, Lorenzo, that the the consequences of this, of violence, of crime, of the bigger systemic challenges seem to be felt disproportionately by certain neighborhoods and certain communities. And often those neighborhoods and communities don't have the the voice or the power to get people to listen. When you talk about people being locked out of schools, for instance, and it's not about just the socialization of our young kids, because for many of our kids, school is the one place that they know they're going to get a balanced meal. But again, let's let's look at some of the adults. Because of COVID, a lot of local small businesses shut down and a lot of people lost their jobs. So now you have people that aren't working. People are left out there scrambling, trying to get work. And we keep hearing there's a lot of jobs, but people are walking away from jobs. These aren't working class people. Those are the folks that are picking up second and third jobs, working for the grocery stores and and doing jobs like that. But again, even with the minimum wage, 
people aren't going to escape poverty working a full-time job. So we need other things to come in. So right now, between 2020 and 2022, this is the perfect social storm that highlights all the inequities in our country. Everything that you just mentioned is about choice, about policy choices that people who are in positions of authority and power are positioned to make. And in New Haven, 10 years ago in 2012, leaders made the choice to launch a new program, at the time, a pilot called Project Longevity. And it was directly tied to these issues of gun violence that you mentioned. And so for our listeners, what was the intention of Project Longevity or what's the focus and how does it connect to these things that we're talking about around gun violence and safety? Let's take a step back before that because Project Longevity didn't start as Project Longevity. It started a decade before in Boston, 1995, people from Harvard University and John Jay College in New York decided, let's take a look at what's going on uh, in our inner cities. And they realized that less than one half percent of the population is contributing to 60% of the violent crime. So they decided that they were going to do Operation Ceasefire. And there were several things that they did. One, they decided we're going to get people together because notoriously law enforcement tends not to talk to each other. So they got Boston police, state police, probation, parole, sheriff's department, all these people together, the court system, the DA. And they said, we're gonna identify these people. We're gonna identify the people that are problematic. And the one thing we've learned, society has taught us, you can't arrest your way out of problems. So they said, let's go a different tactic because these are people in our community that are also facing issues that are causing problems. So let's go and let's talk to them and let's tell them, I'm gonna give you a chance. You need to stop this. We're gonna give you resources to come out of this. But if you don't, the quote from Boston was, we will pull every lever to, at our disposal to make sure you never see the light of day again. And we found out in 96 and 97, that youth homicide in Boston dropped by 55%. So clearly it worked, bringing community members together in that. And then under the Obama administration with Eric Holder and Governor Malloy, they said, let's take a look at moving this in. We're gonna alter it a little bit. We're gonna call it Project Longevity and New Haven, Hartford and Bridgeport are gonna be the pilots. So let's look at what happened in New Haven. So when we decided to do that, Understand that this is not a policing problem. It's a New Haven problem. The police alone can't do this. Remember, we can't arrest our way out of crime. So we go to the police and you got to tap them on the shoulder and say, you need to play nice with the community. You need to show levels of respect and dignity to community members if you want community members to work with you. So they decided to get the clergy. They got local business people. They brought them to the table with people that deal with young people on the street and said, let's identify these people, let's go after them. And we're gonna first of all say, let's let them know that what you're doing is completely unacceptable. But again, that part doesn't work. So under Project Longevity, they added another piece to it. They said, let's talk about helping you transition from gang life into something that's a little more um, suitable for society, because a lot of these kids had failed out of school, they were housing insecure, they were food insecure. What can we do to fix the underlying problem? If you tell us you want help, 
we will give you help. We will help you transition out of the gang life into something else. If you don't, then there's going to be consequences. And it's the carrot and the stick. But you have to offer a real carrot first because there's a lot of people there that are in this lifestyle because they're forced to be, not because they choose to be. So if we offer them other alternatives, then that'll help them and that'll help reduce the amount of people that we need to uh, keep an eye on. On paper, it sounds like a resounding success. So there was a 2015 study from Yale and it found that there was an overall 37% decrease in shootings per month and a 73% decrease in group-related shootings. And a lot of that reduction has been attributed to Project Longevity. And so it would sound like, listen, this is great. We set out to address this problem. We intervened and we had this outcome. And yet there seems to be a continued critique from a number of community members and organizations who say this is targeting people who are already vulnerable or already susceptible to risk and harm. And does this really build the kind of community relationships that you say are essential to not trying to arrest our way out of a problem, but really build relationships that will intervene and prevent some of those crimes from happening? Do you think these are valid critiques? Those are absolutely valid concerns, and they should be raised every single time we have this conversation. We need the community's voice in this. The community needs to say what works, what doesn't work, what works for us. Part of the problem, though, is the New Haven Police Department has been woefully understaffed. It's really hard to do community-based programming if all you're doing is chasing 911 calls. And at this point in New Haven, and this is not the fault of uh, Chief Dominguez, certainly not the fault of Chief Reyes or um, Chief Campbell, it's just a progression because most police departments that I work with, and I work with police departments all over the country, the numbers are dwindling. People are finding other occupations that they would rather go into. And part of it is because of the police, but the numbers are low. If you're, if you're down 100 officers, you're getting your community service officers, you're putting them back on patrol. A lot of your detectives go back on patrol and they become reactive because upwards of 90% of law enforcement is reactive. If we can get enough officers back on community intervention, that's going to help. And if you, if you ask a, a police chief, tell me about your community policing. And if they tell you we've got 10 officers that are assigned or 20 officers, to me, that's a problem. Because community policing is not a strategy. Community policing is a philosophy. If you have a police department with 300 people and you have 40 people that are community policing officers, that tells me the rest of your department is not. So we need to change the mentality, but it's hard to do that because there's still a lot of good men and women in the New Haven Police Department that put on the uniform every single day. They're forced to work overtime. If you don't like the way the police are doing their job, why don't you apply, become a police officer, be the change that you want to see, because there's a lot of men and women on the job that are looking for backup, looking for help, looking to try to make a difference. Trying to make a difference in such a complex environment can be overwhelming for many people. 
And at the same time, there are people who step up to do that work because of their love for a city, their love for an area, and their commitment. And one of those people is Stacy Spell, who is program manager for New Haven's branch of Project Longevity. And he said something in an interview that I thought was really interesting that I want to get your reaction to. He says that the team is to blame for some of the people who were reincarcerated even after they received support from the program. But he said, quote, there are some individuals who are going to have to be incarcerated because they are socially unfit for society. What's your reaction to that statement? Yes, I believe that's true. Unfortunately, there are definitely people who are not going to play nicely with people. But again, as a classically trained sociologist, my job is to try to figure out before that what's going on. And it's not that people are born broken. People become broken typically because of the system. If we can go back to community services, the number of people that need to be incarcerated, I think will also decrease because we need to help fix broken people. If we do right by the stuff that happens for young people, we won't have to worry about what happens later on, or at least not to the same extent. Dr. Boyd, you are a classically trained sociologist. You are also a former law enforcement officer, and you do this training across the country with officers of different perspectives, which I think is important to not just paint this broad stroke, but to really get in to those questions. What would you say to our listeners are one or two things that we collectively could partner on doing? Because I hear people saying, listen, we don't want police officers to be social workers. And then at the same time, we hear people saying, well, why would you invest in these social types of services when you could just devote that money to hiring more offices? So what would you say are one or two practical things that we could do together to really get this right? Well, we have to accept that part of policing is, in fact, social work. The police do two things really well. They use force and they detain. If we can get them beyond that, get them out of the law enforcement mentality back into the policing mentality, let them know that they're part of the community and let them interact with the community. That's really important. The flip side is I need community members to be able to talk to police officers. I volunteer a lot of my summers working with K through 12 students. And one of the things that I do, I give them a homework assignment. I say, go find a police officer in your community, say hi to them. A lot of them say, no, I hate the police. I would never do that. And I said, well, this is your homework. Just try it. Just say hi. And there was one young guy who told me how much he hated the police. He came back the following week and said, I said hi to this white officer in my community. And guess what happened? I said, what? He said hi back to me. And he asked me how I was doing. And this little kid, it was like his mind was blown. He said, it seems like he was just a regular person. And we started talking about the New York Giants. And it was kind of cool. If we can get community members to see not all cops are bad. If we can get police officers to see that not all community members are suspects, if we can get them together. But again, it's really hard when every time you see a police officer, they're getting out of their car with their handcuffs or they're pulling out their weapon. We have a responsibility in our community. A lot of folks say we want to police ourselves. We know what's going on in our neighborhoods. And folks say, well, I'm not going to rat on people. If you don't want to tell the police who's doing it, reach out to the people that are messing up and tell them, you can't do that here. You have to go somewhere else. We have to spend time saying, I live here. You can't sell that on my stoop. You can't do that in front of my house. You can't do that on my street. I've got kids here. 
And then we'll see that people care about the community. This didn't just start in 2020. So it's not going to just magically disappear overnight. But we have to go from none to some. The biggest journey starts with one step. And that's where we need to go. Lorenzo Boyd is Stewart Professor in Criminal Justice and Community Policing at the University of New Haven. Lorenzo, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Good luck in all you're doing. Coming up, a new report gives us a fresh lens on the housing crisis in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Because of the increased demand during the pandemic, the Connecticut housing market continued to grow in 2021. According to Berkshire Hathaway, the average home prices in our state grew by 12%. But as the market has grown, so too have eviction rates. In just the last five years, nearly 75,000 eviction filings have been submitted to Connecticut courts. And now there's a new collaborative report from the Connecticut Data Collective and the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. This report provides data on who is most impacted by these evictions. Now, the report will be released on February 8th, but joining us now for a preview are Michelle Reardon-Nold and Salman Kazrunian. Michelle is Executive Director of the Connecticut Data Collaborative, and Salman is Staff Attorney for the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. I asked Michelle what inspired the report and the collaboration between these two organizations. So this work came about from an analysis the Connecticut Data Collaborative did last year that was commissioned by the Aurora Foundation called Essential Equity, Impact of COVID on Women and Girls. And in that report, we showed the impact COVID was having on housing instability. So based on those results, Jenny Stedman, executive director of the Aurora Foundation, asked us to look at evictions more in depth, which led to our partnership with CT Fair Housing Center. So Salman, this partnership comes out of this interest in evictions and housing access and housing instability. And at the same time that you're having this conversation about a housing crisis, it seems like a lot of people decided to move to Connecticut during the pandemic. So for some of our listeners, there may seem to be this mismatch between them knowing someone who relocated to the state and then what you're seeing in your work of actually for people to be here, it is incredibly difficult. What is the current state of the housing market here in Connecticut? Generally speaking, I think in most people's minds and many people's minds, the eviction crisis is a relatively novel pandemic era thing, but actually the term has been used to describe the state of rental housing in the United States for years prior to the pandemic and applied in Connecticut long before the pandemic. There, there were 20,000 evictions a year before the pandemic. So the eviction crisis has been going on for quite Sometimes. So what I would say is that it's a tale of two Connecticut's is a phrase we've heard a million times. There are 
uneven housing markets depending on the background of the renter or buyer. And that is the product of decades and centuries of discriminatory, intentionally exclusionary policies. I, I would say that the pandemic has accelerated a number of these trends, but also brought some of these issues to light in a way that really forced public officials to do something about them in a way that I haven't seen as someone working in housing for the past 15 years, I haven't seen ever. And that sort of has crystallized with the passage of a right to counsel program that, that I think is going to make a large systemic difference for Connecticut renters. Michelle, I want to talk about those systemic changes that can be made because these things are not happenstance. They are the result of political policy, legal decisions that are made, but the impact of those decisions are often felt disproportionately across communities. And one of the things I want our listeners to to really understand here of what makes this report groundbreaking in a number of ways is that it's not just about showing the numbers of evictions. You are able to actually show data on who's being evicted. For a state like Connecticut that's seeing some demographic shifts, it adds even more teeth to the things that Salman was saying in terms of what this means for the backgrounds of renters and tenants. Why is it that this is considered new to include that kind of demographic data to actually bring this together? Why is this so important right now? It is. And you said it exactly. I mean, what we've done with making this data public is we've applied a couple methodologies where we've estimated race and ethnicity of the defendants and sex of the defendants. So that data is not available in the federal court filings. But through two estimation methods that we applied, we are able to say who is actually being evicted. And I don't think this is surprising to anybody who help clients and all housing advocates. But what it does is what we haven't done before is we've put out numbers, but we've never talked about who. So we can see who is being evicted. And we can say more Hispanic and Black women are being evicted. They're being evicted at higher rates. And so it forces us to address you know, these discriminatory practices and take action. As one might expect, the bulk of eviction filings were in dense metro areas, places like Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Haven, and New Britain. The evictions filed in those cities account for over half of all filings during the report's five-year period. Now, the report also revealed the increased burden that women face in eviction cases. Among all cases, women represent 56% of the filings. And for Black women, that number grows to 60% of the cases. Michelle Reardon-Knoll from the Connecticut Data Collaborative says that many parts of the report were surprising, but what really stuck out to her was the prevalence of housing authorities. What we also found from the data is that there's a high number of evictions occurring at housing authorities, right? And those are concentrated in the cities, which is why you're seeing the numbers concentrated in the cities in our state. But those are the the housing authorities are supposed to be providing housing to low-income individuals. So that was, you know, someone who's not in the, I'm not a housing advocate, that was kind of surprising to me. And, and something that systemically, I hope our policymakers take a look at and try and understand what, what is going on here and why is that happening. 
You know, when we we think about having safe options, I, I want to be very clear with our listeners that we're, you know, not talking about crime rates or anything like that, but really having access to lead-free dwellings, to safe, clean water, having access to transportation so that people can get to jobs to take care of their families. And all of that feeds back into who has voice power and representation in our state. And so Salman, that issue of representation for tenants seems to be so critical to having an impact potentially on the outcome of that eviction process. Why is having access to counsel so important to shaping that power that happens in eviction courts? I think the data that we've looked at gives us a lot of insight into that question. What are what are the differences in outcomes for tenants who are represented versus those who are unrepresented? And more broadly, what are the baseline numbers that we started with before the right to counsel program? We found 80 percent of landlords were generally re- represented in any given year and less than 7% of all tenants have lawyers. So when when you go into a into a courtroom, typically there's a bunch of landlord attorneys and a bunch of pro se tenants uh, and they're they're arguing motions against each other and you can you can guess the way that those are going to tend to lean. But I would also say that the the data show us that tenants who are represented are significantly less likely to be forcibly removed from their home. They they may well end up moving out at the at the conclusion of a case, but their move out won't be a marshal knocking on the door and putting them on the street. They can sort of control the circumstances of that move and find another place before being rendered homeless. So so specifically, we've we've found that the likelihood of unrepresented tenant obtaining a judgment for possession for non-payment of rent is roughly 27.7% in 2019. I'm looking at 2019 only figures. That drops to just 3.4% of all cases with counsel. The likelihood of final removal order called an execution issuing in a case dropped from 44% of cases without counsel to 21% with counsel. So the likelihood of that final removal order issuing drops by more than a half. So the right to counsel program, I think will be a system change. It'll really be a balance in certain ways. And I I don't want to pretend like the cards aren't still stacked against the people who are economically challenged and trying to make rent payments every, every month. And the rules are still stacked in favor of landlords in eviction court in Connecticut. But this starts to level that playing field a little bit. You know, what I hear from both of you is this vulnerability for particular segments of our state. And so this data is so key because it not only talks about the number of evictions, it highlights the key landlords across the state who have filed the most evictions, and then how this matters at every level. And all of that coincides, not surprisingly, with the start of the 2022 legislative session here in the state. And for all of the problems and challenges you've pointed out, it also suggests that there are possibilities for policy-based legislative reform here. What's the role you want your report to play? Michelle, I'll start with you. 
one thing I would hope is they did pass right to counsel last year, but these data all show the power of having right to counsel. So I hope that if there's the opportunity to strengthen or broaden the right to counsel legislation, that they would consider that. I also think it's important for us, as you mentioned, to take a look at the landlords who are doing the most evictions and seeing if there's ways in which we can write that opportunity for people and, and make sure that you know housing authorities are providing safe and affordable housing. I think there's also an opportunity for us to think creatively and try and figure out how do we stop from even getting to the point of needing to evict, right? And that's, I mean, we don't want to see these numbers. And so how do we how do we stop the problem before trauma takes place? So that's a discussion I'd like to see. Salman, what about you? Well, I think there are other other ways we can we can start to address this volume of evictions. Like one example would be that many, many evictions are what we, we call no cause evictions, which means the landlord really doesn't have a good reason for evicting you. I really don't think that those types of evictions should be permitted. I, w- I would like to see no cause evictions eliminated. And I think that that's a relatively simple fix that would make an Im- immediate impact on pandemic era housing and also generally. Michelle Reardon-Nold is Executive Director of the Connecticut Data Collaborative. Salman Kazrunian is Staff Attorney for the Connecticut Fair Housing Center. Their collaborative report on evictions comes out February 8th. And to find out more about evictions in our state, you can go to ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Jane Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.